wants them, uh, Luke wants them to know about the resurrection. Isn't this interesting? In Acts, they wrote more, uh, the, the Peter and Paul preached more on the resurrection of Jesus than the cross of Jesus. That's fascinating. It's fascinating to me because sometimes I think we speak so much about the cross of Jesus, and we should. Uh, we 100% should. I'm not saying we should ever speak any less about the cross. We should speak more about the cross of Jesus. Everything in life should either go to the cross or from the cross. The cross changes everything. But if we stop there, then we're, we're missing out on what Peter and Paul got to throughout Acts, which is the resurrection of Jesus, where we find our hope. And so, um, three things in related, related to the resurrection that we want to look at this morning is, you've got to see it. Number one, you've got to see it. Number two, you've got to settle it. Number three, you've got to share it. You've got to see it. You've got to settle it. You've got to share it. Uh, during the Reformation, and uh, many things were happening during the Reformation, but one of the things that were happening through the Reformation is that the Bible was getting translated into people's languages so that they could read it for themselves. That's one of the great things the Reformation gave the church, is that ordinary people like you and I could read the Bible for themselves. And um, uh, one of the, the places that this was done was in France. And one of the reformers uh, there was translating the Bible for the first time. Just move to the beat. <laughs> All right. One of the, uh, the reformers there was translating the Bible for the first time into, in, in French. When he wrote his little preface or gave it a title, he said, uh, kind of to the forgotten French. In other words, here's a blessing to you. No one's thought about you. You've never had this. This is for you. This is for those who have never had the Word of God in their own language. And um, so he, gave, he wrote it into French. And the guy who did that, who translated the Bible into French, uh, he had a cousin who wrote the preface for him. The cousin wasn't that well-known and was younger, but later became more, more well-known, and his name was John Kelvin. Uh, John Kelvin wasn't that well-known yet, and he was very young, but he still wrote the preface to this French um, Bible. And I want to read part of it. It's a long preface. We're not gonna, we don't have time for it today. But let me just um, read some of it. This is what he wrote. In thinking about the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus um, says to them, or it says to us that Jesus explains how he had to fulfill all that was written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their eyes to understand it. In other words, they knew the Scriptures, they'd memorized the Scriptures, that, that's how they were taught, that's what they learned at school is uh, the Old Testament, or at least the first five books. They knew a lot of it. They could recite it. These were, these were religious people, but they didn't understand it. And Jesus helps them to understand everything that they've heard. And so Kelvin writes, uh, this is, you know, something of what they would have begun to understand. He, Christ, is Isaac, the beloved son of the father who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He is Jacob, the watchful shepherd, who has such great care for the sheep which he guards. He is the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He is the great sacrificer and Bishop Melchizedek, who has offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. He is the sovereign lawgiver, Moses, writing his law on the tables of our hearts by his Spirit. He is the faithful captain and guide, Joshua, to lead us to the promised land. He is the victorious and noble King David, 
bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. He is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He is the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death um, has overwhelmed all of his enemies. Later on, he continues to write, If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to Jesus. And for a fact, since all the treasures of wisdom and understanding are hidden in him, there is not the least question of having or turning toward another goal, not unless we would deliberately turn aside from the light of truth to lose ourselves in the darkness of lies. It follows that every good thing we could think or desire is to be found in the same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold um, that every good thing we could think Oh, sorry, for he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we may be fair. He died for our life, so that by him fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, darkness turned into light, fear reassured, dis, dis, uh, despisal despised, debt cancelled, labor lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate. Difficulty, easy. Disorder, ordered. Division, united. Ignomy, ignoble. Rebellion, subjected. Intimidation, intimidated. Ambush, uncovered. Assaults, assailed. Force, forced back. Combat, combated. War, waged against. Vengeance, avenged. Torment, tormented. Damnation, damned. The abyss, sunk into the abyss. Hell, transfixed. Death, dead. Mortality, made immortal. In short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness, all misfortune. That's the work of Jesus. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then none of that is true. And if he did rise from the dead, then all of that is true. The problem that some have is that they would take the message of Jesus and the principles of Jesus, or you, or you go read you know, some of the best-selling books, uh, Principles on Business, and they would be biblical principles. In other words, they, they take Jesus to be a, a teacher of good, you know, he's a wise guy, and, and his ways seem to work. You know, if you take his advice, he's a good advice giver. And uh, I'm sure you have friends like I do, unsafe friends, who they don't mind Jesus. They pro-Jesus the teacher. They're okay to hear, you know, tell me what Jesus teaches. I see how it works. I see that he teaches around love. I see that it has good results. But don't try to convince me that Jesus is anything other than a world-class teacher, maybe one of the best that ever lived, but nothing more than that, certainly not the divine, the divine being who created all things and then entered His creation to save us, rescue us from our sin, I don't want to see my sin, don't tell me about my sin, died for my sin and then was raised to life and now rules over all of, of life and death. No ways. I'm not interested in that Jesus. But if you're reading the Scriptures and you're not seeing a raised Jesus, then Jesus is telling us you're not getting the message of the Scriptures. You're not reading the Scriptures right. The Scriptures, John Calvin is saying, is every single line of the Old Testament leads us, takes us to Jesus. If we're getting, else, if we're getting something else from it, then we're not reading what is in it. The Scriptures are there to point us to Jesus, right? And so Jesus opens up the disciples in our text this morning Jesus helps them to understand 
how everything they've heard, how everything that was taught, how everything that they've read, how everything they've memorized, how everything they hear points to Him. And then He had to open up their minds to understand all of it. And when they did, it clicked. Have you ever had that moment, the aha moment? It just cl- something just clicks. You knew it. You knew it before, but you never really, you never really got it. And then it clicks, right? So you've got to see it. You've got to see that um, that Jesus is a is a risen Savior. Let, let me put it this way: If you have a problem with the Christian faith, or if you have a problem with obedience to God. Or if you have a problem with something in the Scripture, Tim Keller says this. Put it aside for a moment. First answer the question, has Jesus been raised from the dead? If He has not been raised from the dead, then don't worry about all of these problems you have because the whole thing's a mess. If He has been raised from the dead, like the Scriptures say, well, then you have to deal with all the problems that you have and it doesn't, it doesn't matter that you have a problem. You still have to obey Him. He's the risen one. You still have to put up with the things you don't like because He's the risen one, and you just have to subject yourself to the King of Kings. And so it's a kind of a, a fairly logic, a fairly easy logic. If Jesus hasn't risen, get on with your life however you want. If Jesus has risen, get on your, with your life however He wants but you've got, to, you've got to see it. You've got to see that that's what the Scriptures are all about, getting us to the risen Savior. Number two, we have to settle it. Oh, sorry, let me just show you one more thing. When, the first, um, when, they first, when Peter first preached a sermon, this is one of the first sermons ever preached by one of the disciples after Jesus ascended, maybe the first one. How important was the risen Savior in his mind in preaching the gospel? How important was it to Peter the, uh, the idea of Jesus being raised from the dead. So we have, we have him preaching probably well, his first recorded sermon in Acts. And in Acts 2, listen to what he says from uh, Acts 2.25. Peter says, he quotes David. For David says concerning, and he's talking to thousands of people. We know 3,000 got saved, so there's probably a few who, maybe a couple who didn't. Um, so he's talking to a mass, and he says to them, For David says concerning Jesus, I, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will, will dwell in hope. He's quoting Psalm 16. This is literally Psalm 16. He's just reading it. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with, the, with your presence. He's literally just read Psalm 16 or, or quoted Psalm 16, 8 to 11. That's, that's what he's done so far. But now he begins to interpret it for the people. You've heard this. We've read this. We've all known this. But we've been confused. What does it mean? Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence. This is like us going, guys, David's dead. You and I both know David's dead. So what he wrote can't be about him because it says he won't see destruction he won't, he won't be, be left to death. He, he will be alive. He will rise. It can't be David. Confidence about the... And he says that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You and I can go walk down to David's tomb. He's in there. <laughs> can't be David. 
being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And then Peter says, and this is the Christ, Jesus. You see what he's doing? Hey, we've all known this. We just didn't know how to interpret it. But now we do. It all makes sense when you look to Jesus, the risen one. Number two, you've got to settle it. It's not unusual to try and settle truths. If you've ever had a parent or you've been parented, there may be things that parents repeat things because they they really want to settle it in their children's lives. So um, Rob Nightingale told me once, I think you taught this in, in school, if you're becoming a teacher, you taught this at uni, that children take 200 times, to, they have to hear something 200 times before they learn it. I think that was maybe a few generations ago. I feel like modern children take a lot longer than 200 times <laughs> to hear things. Adults are supposed to be seven or eight. I'm somewhere between, I, I think, you know, I'm called the child of God and I'm closer to the 200 number that I still need to get things. But the point is, you restate things that you want to get settled in people's lives. Um, and sometimes those are good things, sometimes those are bad things. You know, you know, if you go to the playing field on a primary school, you hear children restating to each other all the time, you're so annoying! Hopefully that doesn't settle in that child's life, because they'll grow up to walk very insecurely and go, I am so annoying. What does that mean? No one wants to be around me, right? That would be the outcome of, of that. But we don't say those sort of things over our children um, too often, and when we do, we apologize. Uh, But the things that we do want to say to our children are the things we want them to believe, the truths about God in their lives. So I I remember um, going to sleep almost almost every night of my life. My dad would come into my room as I was falling asleep and he'd say, Mark, I love you. Do you know that I love you? He not only stated it, but he wanted me to restate to him, yes, dad, I know that you love me. And then he would say, do you know that no matter what you do in your life, it will never change how I love you. And it was this like exercise of like, oh my gosh, we've been here. What I didn't understand, now that I'm a dad, I get it. You want to settle in your heart that it's settled in their heart that they know they are loved. And if he wasn't sure that I knew, he, he needed to say it again so that he would be sure that I was sure. And these are the two things. He wanted to know I was loved, and he wanted to know that regardless of my behavior, nothing would change his love for me. What that did to me, as it settled in me, because it did settle, is I know today, I've been 39 for the past three or four years, so you can figure out my age. I know today that regardless, my best day or my worst day, when I'm serving God, Jesus, with glory, in a glorious fashion, when I'm stumbling and falling and I'm marred in sin, I know I can call my dad and I know no matter what I say to him will change his response to me. Either he will join in my rejoicing or he will uh, join in my suffering. But either way, he will join himself to me as my loved, as the father who loves his son. Not everyone has that privilege, but I'm trying to show you the example of what settled being loved does to you. It leaves you secure. Regardless of what I end up doing, 
I know I'm loved. My doing doesn't make me more or less loved. So when you hear the message of the gospel and you find out you have a Father in heaven who loves you, who is gracious and merciful, you can believe it and you can, be, you can settle it. I'm loved. But I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve it. But I'm loved because He loves me. Not because I deserve it. Well, you're not better than anyone else. I know I'm not better than else, but I'm loved because He chose to love me. And that settles it. So it doesn't matter if I'm having a great day or a bad day. I can run to my Father in heaven and I can reach out to jump into His arms because I know He will join me in my day, in my journey. I'm loved. Man, we've got a bunch of preaching babies this morning. (laughs) One day, one day, Asher, you just have to wait your turn. Wouldn't it be amazing one day to see Asher preach? Please, Lord. My wife told me, uh, you may not like this example, I apologize. I think it's a good one though still. My wife told me early in our marriage, Mark, if you ever have an affair, I want you to come back home. I want you to run back to me and I want to believe that God will help me find the grace to forgive you. You know, there's other ways she could have gone about the same message. She could have gone like, if you ever look at another woman, don't bother coming home. Because you made a covenant not to. And if you're going to break that, you're a big liar, don't bother coming home. She could have begged me, please, I'm vulnerable in your arms. You are my love. You are my beloved. You could crush me if you ever look at another Please don't crush me. Please hold me gently. She could beg. What she gave me was grace. Mark, if that ever happens, I want you to run home. You know what it did? It made me more sure that that will never happen. Grace doesn't make you run towards sin. Grace enables you to say no to sin. It empowers you in a way that guilt and shame can't empower you. Guilt and shame can stop you from doing some things because we avoid doing some things because we don't want to feel guilt and shame. No one runs to guilt and shame. So if there's something I think, man, I'm really going to feel horrible in doing this, you know, I'm just not even going to bother doing it. Maybe it's just like that extra bit of ice cream. Like you can get, around, you can get away with one scoop and you feel okay about it. But it's that fifth or sixth scoop that, <laughs> that you just know. Oh man, I went too far. And that feeling ruins the whole journey. You don't just feel bad about that sixth or seventh scoop. You feel bad about the whole thing. Next time someone offers you ice cream, if you're still feeling guilt and shame about the ice cream before, you say no, not because you don't love ice cream, but because you're living in the guilt and the shame. Grace doesn't treat you with guilt and shame. Grace brings liberty and freedom says you may never be able to meet the standards of holiness and expectation, but the only chance, the only shot you have at it is if you know you need God and you walk with Him. And I can't do that for you and you can't do that for me and we can't have some sort of legal, moral standard that we press upon each other. What we can do is say, live in grace, trust Jesus, and let's see how we go. And as we walk in the grace of God in our lives, we found that we are empowered by His grace, by His Spirit, to go beyond guilt and shame, to shake off guilt and shame, to get up again, and to keep going.
That's what grace does. Love settles you. Settles you in freedom. Grace frees you, liberates you. Jesus wants them to settle His resurrection. He comes into the room. What does He want, what does he want to give them? What's the resurrection going to give them? Peace. He walks in the room and says, peace to you. Sell why are you disturbed? Why are you concerned? Why are you troubled? Why are you worried? You haven't yet settled it. You think you see in a spirit. You think it's a ghost. You don't yet, it's not yet settled in, in your mind. The trouble that you're experiencing, the doubts that you're having is because it's not settled yet. When it's settled, you'll experience a peace. You'll experience a faith. Do you want to change faith and doubts for peace and, uh, uh, sorry, fear and doubts for peace and faith? Settle it. Settle the resurrection. Settle that Jesus is alive. Settle that He is the King of kings who is reigning today. He's alive today. Not, not philosophically, not theologically. He is literally alive right now. And through His Spirit, we are seated with Him in heavenly places and He is dwelling in us through His Holy Spirit. Now, those of you who know me well, it's hard to, be, it's hard to look at my life and believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I get that. And it's hard to look at yours and believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But the Spirit of God is doing some amazing things in our hearts and our minds and in our lives. And He's enabling us to be more and more like Jesus, to be more and more loving like Jesus over time. But at some point we have to settle. Yeah, I'm loved. Yes, this marriage is going to be best if we put grace into it. Yeah, Jesus is alive. How does that bring peace? Why would it be peace that it gives us? Because life is full of difficulty. Life is full of struggle. There are moments where we might go, has God allowed this suffering? Where's God in the suffering? What's God doing? Has He forgotten me? Has He left me alone? I don't understand it. In those moments, it's a great relief to be able to say, I don't understand, but I know Jesus is alive. I know He's the King. I know He's good. I know He's coming back. I know He's going to redeem all things. What if health takes you? Jesus is alive. My grandma passed away on Tuesday morning. She said to my mum, she's been saying for the last few months, with great frustration, she said it to me in a text, but she told my mum, with great frustration, I really don't understand Jesus. I'm so done with this place. I just want to go and be with Him. I just don't get it. Like, I'm literally doing nothing here, day in and day out. I can't even serve Him. I'm too old and broken. Could He just take me home? I can't wait to be with Him. Doesn't she sound like Paul? Oh, if I'm going to die, I go to be with the Lord. But I guess if He leaves me here, then I can be of service to you. Um, I, I, I recently had, I told you about this, so it's not, but for those who visited, it's small cancer scare. 
But when the doctor says that word, you don't, you, your mind jumps straight to the end, not the, the, oh, the you, your mind, or my mind doesn't go, oh, it's probably nothing. My mind went, oh, it, this could be the end. <laughs> I was amazed by the first feeling that sprung up. You know what sprung up? This is what I was expecting to spring up. How well have I prepared for NAS? Which inevitably is going to be not well enough. How well have I prepared the kids? Which inevitably is going to be not well enough. That's what I was expecting. What bypassed all, climbed on top of all of that and ran way ahead of that was, oh my gosh, I'm literally going to see Jesus face to face. That's unbelievable. I mean, I believe it. But it's like the disciples here who went, go read the text again. It says, they didn't believe for they marveled. In other words, Luke's not saying they didn't believe. They're saying, this is too good to be true. This is incredible. It's more believable that this is a spirit. But if this is literally Jesus raised from the dead, oh my gosh, that changes everything. And it did. It changed their lives completely. And I thank God that he allowed me to see, you know, it ended up being nothing about death, but I thank God for allowing me to see that at death's doorstep, Jesus stands with his arms outstretched, saying, come on home. Bad days, good days, hard days. You may live in poverty your whole life. You may live with sickness and pain your whole life. None of that is going to stop you from entering Jesus' presence. None of that. What's more is He's going to restore everything. Heal everything. You've got to settle the resurrection. Why? Because there's hope and joy for you today. Not just then. Not just one day I'll, I'll have joy. One day Jesus will give... No, today He wants to begin to give you joy and hope. Today. Sometimes I feel like I'll only have those things if Jesus makes my life comfortable and secure and pleasurable. And Jesus says, no. In spite of all that, let, if Satan does his worst, if you experience every pain, and that's fantastic because then you can empathize with those in pain. Mark, even then you can still experience the hope and the joy that is in the life to come. Why? Because it's all true. He is raised from the dead. And lastly, if we see it in the scriptures and that becomes our reality, we go, yeah, right, the Bible's all about Jesus reigning, about a king. If we see it, I had a wonderful discussion with my daughter this week because of the queen's passing, and we spoke about a monarchy and my daughter said, I don't think I like monarchies. I think I've preferred democracies. It's like I, we had a great conversation and said, well, don't get too used to your vote because Jesus is never going to ask for it. <laughs> he's the king. Whether you like it or not, he's the king. Uh, and he's a good king. And it's wonderful to be one of his subjects. And we need to see it. We need to settle it in our hearts because life is difficult. But when it's settled in our hearts, the resurrection of Jesus gets us through. We get to wade on the water of difficulties like a duck 
You know, you just kind of watch these little ducklings at spring. They're all over the place. Geese, uh, what are geeslings? Geeslings and ducklings, goslings and swanlings, whatever. Cygnets and... <laughs> Why is it ducklings and then everything else makes no more sense? You watch them, you know, they just, their bodies just bounce on the water. They, can't, they actually can't get under the water. They're just like... That's what settle it in your heart because the floods of pain and suffering and difficulty will come, but the re reality of Jesus being alive and interceding for us and being our King keeps us bouncing up. Not out of the suffering, but buoyant in it. And number three, share it. Share it. I just quickly want to say three things about that. What are the limits of the message? There are no limits. Who's it for? Everyone. Jesus says, this is going to go to the ends of the earth. I love how Steve said already, this, this room feels like it's filled with the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth have come. Oh, I, I heard testimonies today from Austra Australians, Chinese, Russian, German, no one ever knows what Carl is. Um, German, Russian, Russian, German. Yeah, Carl doesn't even know. I haven't heard, but I know the this, this story. Kenyan, Zimbabwean. And we can keep going around the room. The nations have heard the message that Jesus said is going to go to the nations of the world. And it's still going. And this is a nation, you know, this, this is a nation we've come to, to hear the message, to give the message. Perth is the most, uh, on, on someone's scale, the most secular English-speaking city in the world. It's, Jesus wants to reach it. How do we know? Because you're here. You're here in Perth. And Jesus wants you to share about His resurrection. We know there's hope for Perth because you're here. If there wasn't hope, you wouldn't be here. He would have you somewhere else where He's working. He's not wasting your life. You're not forgotten. We're not on the bench of reserves. We're not part of the game. You're part of the game. You're in the game. This is it. There's no limits. Ends of the earth. But listen to the, the nature of the message. It's not this kind of, you know, go out there, point your finger, condemn everyone. We, look, we looked at it in community group. The, the nature of this message, Paul gets up in Acts 17, and he says to them, you know, you worship this unknown God. You've got all this, this row of idols, and one of them says the unknown God, and Paul gets up and says, you worship the unknown God. Let me tell you about the unknown God. How gracious is that? He doesn't get up and go, you bunch of idol worshippers, false gods who can do nothing for you, man-made statues, let me tell you about the true God. He just finds something in their culture and says, hey, you're already there, but let me just tell you, let me connect you to Him. Let me, let's, let's get past that and get a direct connection to the, God, to, to the God you already love and worship. Wow, what genius. But Jesus does something very similar right here. He says it starts in Jerusalem. Think about that. What's just happened in Jerusalem? Not rhetorical. Tell me, like, literally, what's just happened in Jerusalem three days ago? And what happened there? Death of Jesus. What happened around the death of Jesus? Like, how did Jesus die? Cross, crucified. Before that, he was beaten. Before that, he was spat on. Before that, he was mocked. Before that, he was ridiculed. This, in Jerusalem, Jesus has been 
beaten, spat on, mocked, ridiculed. His flesh has been torn apart. His clothes have been auctioned off. He's hung on a cross in loincloth, crucified, died, buried. And Jesus says, you know where the mission needs to begin? Right here. What does that tell you about the nature of the gospel? The grace and mercy of God is beyond comprehension. It's beyond the distance between our left and, and right ear is our whole world. We only believe things we can understand in this gap. But the grace and mercy of God is way beyond our understanding and comprehension. Jesus wants His, his uh, message to begin, the good news to begin, right where He was murdered. To the very people who jeered at Him and scoffed at Him. To the very soldiers who've got pieces of His clothing in their homes. Jesus wants them to be the first to know the great news of repentance and forgiveness. When we're sharing the gospel with people, there isn't an urgency to point our finger at them. There shouldn't be eternal burn tone in our voice. There shouldn't be a, an overstatement of you terrible, awful, horrible sinner. I don't know why God loves you, but He does, and you should turn to God. There should be a tone deep and profound love and grace of a God who pours Himself out. And if you've done your worst, He responds with you first. You first, He wants you to know. There's grace for you. In the power of the message, Jesus says, go and wait for the Spirit. And He's going to empower you. If you and I could throw people into heaven, as Malcolm likes to say, we would. We'd probably have a throwing team. Probably be the, it would probably be this, the service team that everyone wants to be on. But we partner with the Holy Spirit. He uses our lives. He uses our brokenness. He uses our limits. He uses our stories. He uses our neighborhoods. He uses our kitchens, our dining room tables. He uses our workspaces. He uses our desks at work. He uses our work. He uses our cars, our clubs, our schools. And He comes and joins us by His Spirit to share powerfully the good news. I loved hearing a testimony of someone today who told me this morning how they came to God was they went to church. They didn't go to church for God. They went to church for the people. The people were so lovely. And eventually, they got to God. Carl told me his story today. Again, how did you get saved? Well, it's hard to tell. Why is it hard to tell? Because there's no one in particular. There was this person, and there was that person, and that person, and that person, and the whole church as he sat Sunday after Sunday uh, two, for about two years. He goes, I don't believe this stuff, but I spiritually feel so good when I'm with those people. Uh, and blah, blah, and, until eventually, God helped his, the eyes of his heart to see the truth. And the Holy Spirit works powerfully through our lives in ordinary ways. The church, this, so ordinary. <laughs> if you and I were to design the church, we would design it with 
lightning bolts and flashes and power and I don't know, whatever's impressive and so that people would have no doubt. Whew, that place. God designs it with us. They go away. They join together. They pray. They worship. They meet. They share. That's what we do. That's the church. And you can go almost anywhere in the world and find a group of people who come together, who worship, who pray, who would love to see the lost more of them get saved, who are loving each other, serving each other, waiting for Jesus to return. And very, very few of them are flashy or amazing or kind of, wow, man. I drove past someone, someone's house yesterday and there was a, this beautiful new Ferrari parked on the curb. The curb was beautiful itself, but obviously the Ferrari is now more important than the grass that's been growing. It's parked on the curb so that no one can touch this thing. Wow. That's the church we would design. Wow. But Jesus designs something. I don't want to knock us too much, but I just want to say uh, we're more on the lemon section of the, the vehicles. Our lives are broken. We're becoming very, very, very beautiful because of Jesus' work in our lives. Divinely beautiful because of Jesus' work in our lives. But this, this right here, and up the road, and down the road, and over there, and at uh, Providence, up the road over here, And all over the place, very, very precious. Why? Because Jesus had to rise from the dead in order to bring it all together. And one day we'll see Him face to face. See it, settle it, and let's share it. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you gave us the gospel of Luke so that we could be absolutely assured that you have lived, died, and risen again. And that you are alive today, ruling over all the nations, over all the principalities and powers. And that you are at work in our lives. How glorious you are. How wonderful you are. Jesus, I don't always understand your work. We see our brothers and sisters suffering. We'd love to rescue our brothers and sisters from bad days, bad years, from poverty, from sickness, from relationship breakdowns. We would love to change all of that. And I thank you, Jesus, that one day you will restore all things and reconcile all things. But truly, we would have no hope in this world if you weren't alive, if you weren't ruling. 
We give you all glory. All glory to the King of kings. All glory to the Lord of lords. All glory to the one above all names. One day all knees will bow before you when you return. When you raise the dead from their graves and raise us to glory, all shame and guilt will fall off. All regrets will be forgotten. All sickness will be healed. All pains will be stolen. We'll just be the bride and her bridegroom. And we won't be feasting on a bit of bread and a small cup. We'll be feasting at the marriage table. We'll be feasting in heaven at the never-ending rejoicing of God and His people reconciled. Thank you, King Jesus, in your precious and wonderful name. Amen. Thank you.